You know, guys, when you get to be our age, finding the motivation to get back in shape can be hard. It's just plain tough to find a routine and to stick with it. Good news. FitBod is a fitness app that is anything but routine. It tailors your workouts to fit your life, your goals, your gear, and even your schedule, so you can avoid burnout. And FitBod helps keep up your momentum by mixing in different exercises, reps, supersets, and circuits. Best yet, FitBod has over 1,000 demonstration videos, so you can learn the right way to do each exercise. It's time to ditch the boring routines and kickstart your fitness journey. Add FitBod to your workout essentials. Join today to get your personalized workout plan. Get 25% off your subscription or try the app for free at fitbod.me slash Zabe. That's F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash Zabe. Today on the ZabeCast, LeBron James has single-handedly dragged his team into the next round. And you know what? I'd be able to appreciate his brilliance just a bit if the pundits would stop ramming it down our throats. Who won the weekend? Who lost the weekend? Doris Burke, virtue signaling, bullpen cars, and Twitter taunts. All that and more. If you've got 45 minutes to kill, then buckle up and let's go. Here we go. Monday, April 30th, 2018. Thank you for your precious gigabytes of download capacity. I promise I'll be worthy of your data. LeBron James is now 13-0 in first-round series. Him and Wilt, that's apparently the list. Actually, him and Russell was the stat that I saw. That's it. That's the list of guys who have won that many first-round games and have never Actually, that many first-round series and have never lost a first-round series. It took a complete game, a decent effort from his supporting cast, and yes, a healthy little sprinkle, a little dollop of help from the officials. Nothing insane, although one call was truly crazy, and we'll get to that in a second. But LeBron James, 45 9 7 Bam. In Game 7, after a season in which he played all 82 games, he's been playing monster minutes. He's been doing everything. It is incredible. He's an amazing, jaw-dropping, dominant player. And like I said in the tease, I could really start to appreciate him more if the pundits would stop ramming it down our throats. I know everyone wants to jump on the board of isn't LeBron amazing. Oh my God, LeBron. But the the zeal, the religious fervor with which some guys talk about LeBron James is just enough to make you go, okay, you know what? I'm going to back off just a bit because even I can't take that much gargling in the greatness of LeBron James. He will, despite all this greatness, never, ever, ever be spoken about, at least by my generation, and I am 49 years old still for one more month, uh, 30 shopping days left for my birthday, just so you know. He will never, ever be spoken about by my generation in the same light as Michael Jeffrey 
Jordan. He will not be revered. He will not be worshipped. He will not be spoken of in awe like Michael Jordan. And this is for a combination of reasons. And by the way, it may be true that LeBron James is a better overall, all-around, total, dominant basketball player. In fact, if we're just arguing better player, I think that the LeBron, LeBron argument is easy to make from a statistical standpoint and from a physical standpoint. He does just about everything Jordan did, but then plus plus on rebounds and assists, etc. But let me get back to the comparison. So here's why LeBron will never, ever be spoken about by guys my age with the kind of reverence as Michael Jordan is spoken about. It's a couple things. In fact, uh, five things as I check off my list here. Number one, he has not won six titles. Sorry, but that argument has some factor in everything. Six, greater sign, three. Until LeBron gets to four, like Kobe, then the the true total argument, I think, is going to be lacking just a bit. And right now, not sure where I see that fourth title coming from. But that's number one. He has not won six titles. He's won three. Two, the decision. This is a stain that will never go away, at least for people like my age, 49 years old. If you're 22, you don't care. In fact, if you're 22, I don't know if you even remember the decision. But that is the second factor in why he'll never be spoken about by my generation in the same light with the same reverence as Michael Jordan. Number three, the flopping. Oh, for God's sakes, the flopping. Now look, flopping works. That's why people do it. Flopping works so well that the NBA a couple years ago said we're going to have a strict anti-flopping countermeasures installed. And they would then fine guys and they would post the videos to NBA.com saying, shame, 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 you're flopping. And there was an escalating series of fines. I don't know if they still do that. I don't know if LeBron James has ever been called out and fined for being a flopper. But my God, is he a flopper. Oh, boy. More on that in a second with these calls. Number four, why LeBron will never be talked about with the same reverence as Michael Jordan by guys of my generation. And this is the biggest one. It's the social media age we live in. The way that social media works, and now the constant exposure one way, shape, or form to all things LeBron, is enough to really make you hate him. What do they say? What's the old, what's the famous quote? Familiarity breeds contempt. There's too much familiarity with him. There's too much about LeBron James all the time. And that will lead to my fifth point, which is, Everybody yells at us about how great LeBron is and how he's not being appreciated enough. And he's this, he's that, and entire shows on TV are built around LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. Yes, I'm looking at you, Nick Wright, on first take. Yes, I'm looking at you, Stephen A. Smith, on Truth versus Volume, or whatever that show is. Actually, no, Nick Wright is on First Things First. Uh, Stephen A. is first take, 
Then you've got uh, Skippy Bayless, who hates LeBron on Undisputed. Oh, he hates LeBron. Didn't like all the calls he was getting. And on and on. It's the punditry, especially the high-profile, highly-paid television punditry that just shove LeBron down our throat all the time. And this was starting back in October when the NBA season began. Or November, I guess the case would be. Uh, Hockey's October, basketball's November. You know, middle of football season, we've got to get this, well, NBA starts tonight, LeBron versus Jordan. It's like, oh, God, really? Now, the other thing about LeBron, and people are also saying this, is that look at this terrible team around him. Boy, isn't isn't that a pity that he just, his supporting cast is once again not good enough. Just like it wasn't good enough the first stint in Cleveland, which is why he left. Never forget this. A big part of why his supporting cast has not been good enough, especially this second time around, is because of LeBron. LeBron, when he came back, came back with all the power. He came back and told Dan Gilbert, Captain Comic Sans Diatribe, listen here, I'm the captain now. He told an NBA owner, I'm the captain now. I'm going to do things. I'm going to have more weight on everything we do. Okay? I'm going to pick the GM, pick the coach, pick the players, and we're going to create this elaborate ruse that makes it look like I'm not doing any of the above. So he came back, and, you know, first thing he does is he goes all in on we've got to go get Kevin Love. Got to go get Kevin Love in exchange for what turned out to be Andrew Wiggins. And they just, they, they bought high on Kevin Love. They bought high on Kevin Love when they thought, and the whole NBA world thought Kevin Love was a more impactful player than he really is. Great statistical accumulator, a unique sort of skill set where he could get a fair amount of rebounds and also shoot threes. But they bought high on Kevin Love, and they had to pay high on Kevin Love. It's been downhill ever since. The Tristan Thompson deal is another one that's directly in LeBron's lap. I mean, the the amount of money they're paying Tristan Thompson to be pretty much a non-factor is insane. That was LeBron's call. See, Jordan, when he played, didn't have any of that juice. He was not the shadow GM. In fact, one of the big trades that helped finally propel the Bulls with Jordan over the hump came in 1988 when they traded young Charles Oakley for a backup center by the name of Bill Cartwright. Oakley at the time was a 24-year-old stud. Cartwright was languishing with limited minutes on the Knicks roster behind Patrick Ewing. And you had Rick Patino coaching the Knicks at the time. <clears throat> and they pulled that trade. And I remember most people thought, oh my God, what are you doing? Cartwright is this awkward shooting at a weird sort of jump shot. He kind of flicked the ball sideways off his wrist. Cartwright was an old, seldom used backup center. Oakley was this young, absolute bitch, stud of a rebounder. And he was 24 years old. And everyone thought, what are the Bulls doing? Jordan was pissed, reportedly at the time. But this was Jerry Krause, Crumbs Krause, that made this trade. And it's because he felt they needed more scoring from the five spot. Oakley, despite his rough and tumble ways, had very little offensive polish. You couldn't run offensive sets to dump it into him to get shots and to make buckets when you needed them. He wasn't right for Phil Phil, uh, Phil Triangle. 
Big Chief triangle. He wasn't right for Phil Jackson's triangle offense. And Krause knew it, and he pulled the trigger on it. This was not something that Jordan wanted. Turns out that was exactly the right piece. And that was the case with all the role players that Jordan had besides him and Scottie Pippen. You know, guys that just knew what to do and also guys that fit the puzzle put together by Krause, who was, despite being, and may he rest in peace, I believe Jerry Krause passed away a few years ago. Jerry Krause, despite being a guy that is easily mockable because of his appearance and has no public or had no public and no social tact whatsoever, Guy knew how to build a basketball team, period. So all the little pieces, Paxson, Kerr, Wennington, Coach, on down the line, you know, Jordan had very little say in any of that. And that's part of why he also was successful. Six rings. Now, the thing about Jordan today, let's say he did play in today's environment, I'm not saying he wouldn't be every bit the douchebag that LeBron James is. In fact, I could almost guarantee he would be if Jordan were a product of this era. If Jordan were an AAU basketball phenom coming up through the ranks. Yes, Jordan would have a Twitter account. And yes, he would troll the shit out of people. He would mock people. He would would get into fights. I guarantee it. Because Jordan did all this, you know, according to those that were in the team's inner circle, with players on the team. Don't think he wouldn't extend that in the Twitter sphere of today or Instagram or anything else. And yes, Jordan would be the subject. Let's say we reversed the sequence of star players. Let's say LeBron came in the 80s and 90s. And let's say Jordan is the guy now. Yes, Jordan would now be the focus of all these debate shows. Truth versus fiction, facts versus volume, etc., etc. Did so, did not. All the good shows that you pretty much don't watch because they get very low ratings, but we talk about them a lot. And yes, we would have shoved down our throats an almost weekly Jordan versus LeBron debate instead of LeBron versus Jordan. Also, back in the day when Jordan's season ended, which, by the way, was usually in Grant Park with a cigar in his mouth, a trophy in his hand, and about mm, 500,000 people cheering him on, That's all you heard about him or heard from him for the rest of the summer until the next year. That was it. Jordan was a bit of a mystery, and plus, because of the internet and non-social media, you didn't know exactly what he was doing. I mean, we could have guessed. Occasionally, you'd see footage of him at a golf course or something like that. But that break from Jordan was healthy. It's what we needed. Now, we don't get that break from LeBron. As we currently sit, they get the Raptors, and they have owned the Raptors in the playoffs. So there's a lot of people thinking, as long as the Raptors, as long as the Cavaliers steal game one from Toronto, then they're off and running, and they could win this series, or will win this series. Whatever. They still have to, once they get through them, get through either what the remnants of Boston or uh, white-hot Philadelphia comes out of the other bracket, to finally get to another NBA Finals, which I think would be LeBron's eighth Finals in a row, which is incredible, amazing. But please stop shoving it down my throat. There's a I'd consider them getting a title, because then once you get to the championship round of beating either Golden State or Houston, I mean, you're talking... I mean, the percentage chances are zero point something 
Zero point something, you pick your number between one and nine. It's greater than 0.0%, but it's not a lot greater that they win another championship. And this is partly because, you know, LeBron has this wagon load of corpses playing as his teammates. And to drag them all the way to the finish line in June, which is hard to even see, right? Where is June? It's a month and a half away. I don't see it. Where LeBron goes next will be the next interesting chapter. And that will be kind of fun to watch. But I will not argue the LeBron versus Jordan argument. I think it's a stupid, shallow argument. I think it's a preference thing. It's who do you like. Okay. Let's talk about some of the calls uh, last night or yesterday afternoon. Uh, One of the big flops. and, And kudos to the announce crew of Van Gundy and Jackson, who are not afraid to call a flop a flop. Okay, here's uh, here's the first one here. This is the Lance Stevenson. Well, actually, the, the Lance Stevenson foul is crazy. Okay, this was a attempt to block a shot. His arm came down, hit LeBron in the head. LeBron acted like a hatchet had just come down and split his head open like a log. And he's checking, he's wiping his head, he's looking at it. Oh my God, is there blood here? It, it was vintage LeBron acting. But then they go to replay and they figure out that, oh, okay, it's a technical foul on Lance Stevenson as well because the whistle had blown and he was supposed to stop all action in the 1.2 microseconds between when the whistle was blown and when he came down with his arm on LeBron's head. Ridiculous. Here, take a listen. This was the call. And the head where his elbow connects to LeBron James' head. I don't know if that's a flagrant, though. That's not a flagrant. Well, I mean, that's just playoff basketball. They're trying to block the shot. But the, I'm going to predict they're going to call that a flagrant. Yeah, according to the rules. So they kind of changed their mind, Van Gundy and Jackson. I love those guys. I love that broadcast team. They're the best. And there's more on that coming up in a second. Then there was this uh, with uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Bo Buckets played against them and have tremendous respect and love for the great Allen Bogdanovich. That was Corbett's first year in the NBA play when he first started. They don't really comment on that one. LeBron comes driving hard in on the right wing. Bo Buckets has good position. He kind of braces to absorb the inevitable LeBron impact. LeBron senses the contact and then stops, starts to reverse course, and then decides to kind of fall down, to kind of half fall down to sell the call and, of course, they give him the call. The The worst one was this one on Bo Buckets later in the game. And a foul's going to go against Bogdanovich. He's a little frustrated as he picks up his third. And the pace nine from the line. That's a flop. That I love that from Van Gundy. That's a flop. Because he's right. It was a flop. And then, of course, uh, there was a goaltending call that LeBron got, which people say, hey, how come that wasn't goaltending in the game against in the game that they won with LeBron's three when Oladipo went up? And, uh, you know, again, it's the NBA. Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. How the NBA, how the NFL draft go? Well, it was well watched, I'll tell you that much. And here's what the NFL's own press release says. 
2018 NFL Draft sets record for highest rated and most watched draft ever. I'm not disputing this. I just don't know exactly how they calculate it. They say that the NFL Draft resulted in a combined 7.0 household rating for round number one. That was combined on three different networks. NFL Network, Fox Television over the air, and ESPN. That was up 27% year over year. And the total was 11.2 million viewers, which also was up 22% year over year, making it the second most draft day ever. Saturday's combined viewership averaged 2.9 million viewers, making it the most watched third day of the draft ever. According to the NFL's notes, the television figures include ESPN and ESPN2 digital viewing measured by Nielsen, but excludes Fox and NFL digital viewing. Whatever all that means, disclaimer, 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 disclaimer. I mean, I don't doubt that the NFL is super popular and a lot of people watched it, but highest ever exactly? I don't know. The thing about the NFL being a TV show about quarterbacks, as I've said before and over and over, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. I was thinking about a Game of Thrones reference. Nerd! Where let's imagine Game of Thrones had four or five new characters, four or five new badasses. These would be the quarterbacks in the NFL. Four or five new really cool knights or something like that who would get introduced to the show, and you're waiting to see which house that the various new badass characters will pledge allegiance to so that, you know, Targaryen, Lannister, Stark, nerd! And then you can start planning and go, well, now that House Stark has so-and-so, Lamar Jackson... Then they're going to be able to do this or something else. My Redskins took a risk of sorts on Darius Geis in the second round. This was one of the stories of day two of the NFL draft. Darius Geis running back out of LSU, who was the guy that said, hey man, someone at the combine asked me, uh, what what was he said? Not about his mom. He asked if if he liked guys. If he liked men. And then the NFL ran off, issued a statement. Oh my God, this is terrible. They did their investigation. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And the bottom of it was no. Nobody said that. Geis, according to several teams, admitted to them, yeah, I kind of made up that angle on an interview with Sirius XM Radio. Well, even despite that, Geis was expected to go late first, early second. And by the time the second round starts getting into it and getting deep, Here's guys sitting there, sitting there, dropping, 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 dropping. And there's reports and rumors, you know, flying fast and furious from various NFL reporters. Ian Rappaport saying things like he allegedly got into a fight in his visit in Philadelphia. TMZ was supposedly sitting on a bombshell story. That never materialized. Someone else said that there might be an arrest that happened that was covered up that could be potentially very embarrassing. Whatever. Others just cited general immaturity and emotional volatility, and that's why Darius Geis was slipping. Well, my Redskins actually did something I thought was pretty nifty. They traded down, although they traded down according to Schefter because Carrion Johnson was not available by the time they picked in the second round. They traded down, got their third-round pick, which they were without from a trade, or actually they lost their third-round pick in the trade of uh, Alex Smith sending the third-rounder with 
Kendall Fuller to Kansas City. They got the third rounder back in the trade down and still got Darius Geis. Darius Geis is a bad-ass runner. Runs hard, runs angry, with power and wiggle. He looks like potentially a very exciting running back. And he probably is a bit immature and probably does need some hand-holding and probably did have some of the things that were rumored happen one way or the other. But there is a very interesting about six-minute piece, and I did retweet this on my timeline. Go to at... Or go to Zabe at or go to at Zabe on Twitter if you want to look at it. Or just go to Zabe.com. My Twitter timeline's at the right hand side. I uh, retweeted this thing from I guess they did a you know series of draft profiles by Hyundai, and this was about a six minute long mini documentary on Darius Geis growing up uh, in you know obviously very poor Louisiana. I believe it was Louisiana, Alabama, Louisiana. He went to LSU. I think it was Louisiana, and. He ended up going to a white Catholic high school in sort of a blindside story and ended up living with a white family, like in the movie The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock, with Michael Orr. And it was just interesting to see. It was a very well-done piece, interesting to get to know more of his background. Obviously, as Redskin, as a Redskin fan, we don't want Sua Cravens 2.0. We don't want the runaway, uh, runaway safety saga one more time. But look, the players, the Redskin players, if they rally around Geis and they big brother him and show him the ropes and get him bought in on what needs to be done, oh boy, it could be awesome. Could be awesome. Shaq Griffin from UCF, the linebacker who was born with a rare condition that required the amputation of his left hand at age four, was drafted in the fifth round and will join his brother, with the Seattle Seahawks. Shaquem Griffin appeared in 39 games, started 26 at UCF, totaled 175 tackles, 18 and a half sacks with one hand, two interceptions, and 11 passes defensed. He was first All-AAC twice and the AAC Defensive Player of the Year in 2016. Incredible, wonderful story inspirational for anyone with any kind of a disability. I don't know if that's a great pick in the fifth round or a vanity pick or a sympathy pick or a PR pick, especially because his brother is there in Seattle. I don't know. You would think he'd be able to play at the pro level, even with just one hand, but we're just going to have to see. We've seen players who have been great in college who really couldn't play in the pros and they might have been drafted for other reasons. Like, the name that comes to mind is Michael Sam. Michael Sam, a linebacker out of Missouri, was the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. And he was on the verge of not getting drafted at all. But you remember he came out uh, and said that he was gay. And so that added another layer of intrigue to the Michael Sam story. Michael Sam ends up getting drafted in the seventh round by Jeff Fisher and the Rams. And he ends up hanging on their roster, hanging on their roster, then was, I think, let go. The Cowboys picked him up. He was on their roster briefly. And I went to go look at footballreference.com. I was like, how many games did Michael Sam actually play in the NFL? Because I was convinced he had played a couple The answer is zero. Didn't play a single game 
and the NFL. And I think that part of why Michael Sam was drafted, and I think that the league leaned on Jeff Fisher, who was always on certain committees with the league, leaned on him to take him with the seventh-round pick, was because the league didn't want an embarrassment on their hands. That, oh my God, really? Now now everyone's going to say, look at this great player, who, by the way, probably couldn't play at the pro level because he was just not, couldn't make the jump despite being great in college. They're like, you know, look at this great player and the NFL didn't draft him because he's gay. That's so wrong. And so they, they made sure he was drafted. I'm not saying that's the case with Shaq Griffin. Shaq Griffin was going to be drafted by somebody. I thought it was supposedly higher than the fifth round, but I didn't follow it too close. I know personally I'm rooting for him. I love the story. I, I, I love his attitude, his interview with his brother on the set, uh, both wearing Seahawks caps. It's fantastic. It's a great story. I hope it works out. Speaking of draft picks that may or may not have been um, entirely on the up and up, is that the right way to say it? And, and I don't want to say that this pick was not on the up and up, but the timing of it was interesting. So Jason Whitlock talked about how the Ravens moved up in the first round by trading with the Eagles to take Lamar Jackson, who had been sitting with his green velour master-style jacket in the green room with his wife, or his, not his wife, his mom, because <clears throat> his mom was like his agent, and it got to be very lonely in that green room as everyone else was picked around him. It's a terrible visual for the NFL to have that, and they've had that with a number of players over the years. But the Raven, I didn't see this on draft night, so this is why I'm playing it now. So apparently Deion Sanders and Damian Woody of ESPN made out the pick to be more than just, hey, the Ravens could use a successor to Joe Flacco, and this guy might be the guy. It was, in other words, more than just a pick. Here's Jason Whitlock on Speak for Yourself. Mark Jackson, that's the story from day one of the NFL draft that the media won't tell you. Last night, the Baltimore Ravens put a bow on the first round of the 2018 draft, trading for the last pick and using it to select Jackson. The move was celebrated on TV and across the Internet as if civil rights icon Meek Mill had been released from prison. Sarcasm. Deion Sanders profusely thanked Ravens general manager Ozzie Newsom. Ozzie, man, I love you, man. Ozzy, you know, I love you. I appreciate you. ESPN's Damian Woody tweeted that Newsom had done one last good deed. Jackson's selection was treated as a feel-good moment, like a sick kid scoring a touchdown at a college spring game. On a night when 63% of the players drafted would be black or brown, Jackson's selection at 32 was framed as a step toward racial justice. How? Why? Give me a second to get into character. Oh, I say, and I say it again. You've been had, you've been took, you've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok. Since 1999, when Donovan McNabb, Akili Smith, and Dante Culpepper all went in the first round, the NFL has shown no fear of drafting black quarterbacks high. Since 2007, three black quarterbacks, Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, Jamarcus Russell, have all gone number one. In 2013, the first two quarterbacks drafted were black. 
The narrative that the NFL is seething with racial animus and unfairness is hogwash. It's fake news propagated by people who want to destroy football. So, yeah, wow. I did not see the clip of Deion Sanders pointing up to the Jumbotron, or I guess it was on the video feed of Ozzie Newsom pointing to the camera and saying, I love you, man. I love you, Ozzie. Granted, Dion did play for the Ravens, and Ozzie did bring him in late, late, late in his career. That was post-Redskins, and everyone thought, Dion's done, right? And he actually played safety, I think, a little bit for the Ravens and was pretty good. So I understand that there is a personal connection there. And there's nothing wrong with loving Ozzie Newsome, but the way Dion said it, it was almost like, thank God for doing this. We got Lamar Jackson in the first round. And then, of course, Damian Woody saying, you know, Ozzie Newsome does one last great deed. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Whatever you think of Whitlock, the bottom line is he's a thousand percent correct. I mean, this, this is nonsense to go, oh, thank God somebody took Lamar Jackson in the first round. Speaking of virtue signaling, virtue signaling one more here on uh, Whitlock, and this is regarding Doris Burke. And by the way, I've always thought that the Doris Burke phenomenon was a bit oversold because of many people wanting to virtue signal about, oh, see, she's a woman and she's every bit as good as a man, if not better. Okay, fine. I was never anti-Doris Burke, but I never quite got the obsession. I actually listened with a more critical ear when she was doing game six, I want to say, of the Wizards and the uh, uh, Raptors. And she's good. She's good. She knows basketball, is not afraid to say it. But back to Whitlock for a second. So, uh, well, actually, let me do this in order. Let, let me do this in order. So, uh, here was a clip of Whitlock, or excuse me, here's a quick, quick, here is a clip of Doris Burke on HBO's Real Sports talking with Andrea Kramer about what it took for her to finally get off the sideline beat on the NBA and to be the lead analyst calling some of these games. Jeff called, and he said, do you want those games? I said, of course I do. Jeff, I think, would be Jeff Van Gundy. He said, then you need to make sure that that's clear to somebody. I said, I'm not very good at those calls, Jeff. He basically is going off. You've earned this opportunity. These should be your games. Burke took Van Gundy's advice and put in the call to ESPN's lead NBA producer. I said, I'm sure you're going to get many calls like this from whomever it might be, but... I believe I have earned the opportunity to call those games. To which he replied? He didn't play his hand initially, but that afternoon they called to say, this was an easy choice for us. We want you to take that job. What was going through your mind? I what cried. Were you, what were you crying about? Um, you... You pour your heart and soul into something. And you're taking steps and and you get what somewhere I don't know that I consciously allowed myself to dream of that, but um but it happened. Uh, still very emotional. I started broadcasting in nineteen ninety two calling Providence College women's basketball on radio. From there, 
to an analyst on the NBA. Like, think of that journey and every step in between. Special. So there it was. That's a great clip, by the way. They had a great photo of her, uh, young Doris Burke, calling a game at Providence. And uh, she was wearing some sort of dress that almost made her look like she, she not, not like a nun, but uh, almost like a, 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 you have to see the photo. I can't describe it. But it was, uh, it was a very prim and proper dress. And a young, very uh, bright-eyed and enthusiastic Doris Burke was calling the games. Yes, yeah, she's, she's good. She knows basketball. And and that's fine. I just don't know if there's a formula for actually judging analysts. Like, is there a chart? Uh, can you walk me through the five principles of what you want in a color analyst? Uh, she is a non-NBA player. She's a non-NBA coach. If you ask yourself, well, then could anyone do that analyst job as long as you know some basketball or played some basketball at some level? Because she played at Providence, I think she uh, retired as the all-time assist leader. I don't know. I like where do you draw the line? Traditionally, those analyst jobs have gone to ex-players and ex-coaches. Period. Full stop. That's it. And generally speaking, I want my analyst to be an ex-player or ex-coach. I want him to be a good ex-player or a good ex-coach in that league. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of bad ones to awful ones, but that's what I want out of the analyst. I want somebody who's been there for the most part, who has, excuse me, done it, they've been through it, and they know what it's all about. And no matter how good you are, no matter how much time and effort you put into it, you know, if you've never if you've never been there as an ex-player or coach, how would you know what it's really like? But okay, so Doris Burke, whatever. This was back to Whitlock and virtue signaling. Uh, Bill Simmons, you've heard of him, tweeted during Game 7 of the Cavaliers and the Pacers game, quote, Doris doing sideline for this game is embarrassing. She should be calling it. Whitlock fired back, who gets removed? She's now better than Jackson and Van Gundy? Finish the thought and tell us who to replace. I love Doris as much as anybody, but this is virtue signaling. Ring-a-ding-ding. I think the Jackson Van Gundy show with Breen in between them is the best booth in all of sports. And you could say, well, I prefer Burke over Mark Jackson. The chemistry with Doris Burke and Jeff Van Gundy would be all different. It wouldn't be the same. And, yeah, I just, it's silly. I think it's silly to say that. And whether or not... It's not, you could say, I prefer Doris Burke to Mark Jackson, but to say that it's, quote, embarrassing, embarrassing, this is the A team. This is the best team you got, and suddenly now Doris Burke's better than all of them? Why? How? Show me the math on that. By the way, there's tons of men that I hate on TV doing sports. And until we can rip women we don't like for their broadcasting, uh, or because we don't think they're any good, then then once we can do that, once you can rip a female broadcaster with impunity, with social impunity and professional impunity, then we'll have achieved true and total equality. God, do I wish Mike Milbury would somehow lose his voice. Okay, that would be wishing physical harm. I wish Mike Milbury would retire somewhere and go sit up in a cabin 
in the Canadian woods. God, do I hate that guy. By the way, there's now a female calling NHL games. Former U.S. Olympian A.J. Malesko, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. Last name M-L-E-C-Z-K-O. Malesko. Multiple-time U.S. Olympian hockey player. She had been doing games on uh, NBC Sportsnet for the Olympics, and they said, you know what? You ought to do some NHL stuff. She's the third wheel and was the third voice on the Predators game uh, against Winnipeg on Sunday night. In fact, I think she'd been doing the whole series. She's not bad. She's not bad. I mean, again, she played at a certain high level. In the NHL, no. But it is hockey. You got Dottie Pepper on golf, who I like. I just don't think she'd be on she should be on thirteen at the Masters. Jessica Mendoza on baseball, and I don't care enough about baseball to really dissect whether or not the stuff she says is good or not, or stupid or insipid or brilliant. I don't know. We're gonna get Jason Witten apparently as the new voice of Monday Night Football. He might be terrible. Like, there's no idea if he's any good at doing this. He's still playing football. And as of this taping on a Monday morning, guess what? They're still not conceding that he's retired. Apparently reports say that Jason Garrett is going to try to convince Jason Witten to stick it out one more year. Oh, God. I think, you know, and that's all we need is another ex-cowboy on television doing NFL games. Because they don't know if he's going to be any good. What I think networks should do is seriously have auditions for ex-players. Blind auditions, you don't see them, you don't know who they are. You just listen to them. Okay, that's good. He's making a good point here, making a good point there. Nice uh, delivery, gets his you know info in and out in a short, concise manner. Good use of the English language. He's not saying Emmett Smith debacled. <laughs> I like this guy. Then you hire... Got debacled. Right. You hire the person who's the best, not knowing who they are, and then you pay for the likeness rights for a popular ex-cowboy, and put that on the promos. You know, tonight, the new Monday Night Football crew, Joe Tessitore and Jason Witten, call the Buccaneers and the Falcons. And then it's actually someone else you've never heard of, some lineman from some team, and you're like, oh, I thought that was Jason Witten on the call. Oh, no, no, they just used Jason Witness, Jason Witten's likeness to promote the games because he's a handsome, popular ex-cowboy and we think that's going to be ratings. All right, it's getting late early around here. Bucks are done from the playoffs, losing seven to uh, the Boston Celtics. Uh, tough series. Bucks gave it all they could. They've got a big Japari Parker situation, decision coming up. Uh, Giannis is the man. They need to build a better team around him. they got to get better in the half court. But uh, give it up to the Celtics who fought through that series, and are now maybe without Tatum. So you're talking about even more injuries for a completely decimated team. Brad Stevens is really good. My Wizards are done. They lose in six, and they lose embarrassingly in six. Uh, the locker room afterwards for the Wiz was in complete so what mode. Afterwards, Markeith Morris, a.k.a. Keith Morris, said the old line of, well, sometimes the better team doesn't always win and said he thought the Wizards were the better team. Oh, my God. My head is going to fucking explode thinking about this. This is the biggest loser line in sports. Well, the better team didn't win. Oh, yeah? Who the fuck cares? The winning team won, and you were not the winning team. You were the losing team. 
So whatever you did or didn't do or whatever inner reserve you couldn't tap into, guess what? Loser. The better team doesn't always win. I, I, I can't even believe he would say that. John Wall said mostly the right stuff, but pretty much hinted at, yeah, the rest of this team sucks. The roster needs depth. Yeah, you think? I mean, Wall himself is a flawed A player, a, a very flawed A-level player in the NBA. Going to be paid like an A-plus player, and I'll tell you more about that in a second. Beal is a B-plus in my mind, and Porter Porter is a insanely overpaid B-minus player. Look at these numbers here for the Wizards going forward salary-wise. First of all, on John Wall, because of that Supermax deal, Get ready for the rocket ship after next year. Wall made $18 million this year. He'll make $19 million next year. Then in 2019, 2020, and 2021, John Wall will make, you ready for this? 37, 40, and $43 million. Good God! Bing, bang, boom. It's an avalanche of money. I mean, good for John. He hit it just right. He got a super max deal. Wow. million in 2021. Bradley Beal is locked in. Starting, he made $23 million this year. He'll make $25, $27, $28 in the next three years. Otto just got paid. He made $24 million this year. He will make $26, $27, $28 the next three. That's pretty much the whole team right there with the two deadweight anchors, the two centers, that have no range, can't shoot threes, and are making a ton of money. Jan Mahinmi has two more years on this roster at 15 and 15. 30 million and change guaranteed. Marcin Gortat has one more year at $13 million. This is not the way to build a team. Everyone else besides that, I mean, it's just pickup players and 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 spare parts. You know, there's a couple of decent guys. Obviously, Ubre and Sadoransky are pretty much it in terms of younger, interesting players. Everyone else is a plug-and-play. Jody Meeks made $3 million this year for the Wizards, scored about five points a game. Everyone else is like bargain bait. Tim Frazier, backup point guard, made $2 million. He's gone. He was a one-and-done. Ramon Sessions made two hundred twenty-four grand. Uh, he'll be an unrestricted free agent. Jason Smith, power forward, made... million. He's got another 5.4 on the books for next year. Got hurt midway through the season. Mike Scott was a hell of a bargain at 1.4 this year, but he too is done and will be an unrestricted free agent in the summer. I mean, this team is nothing. It's three players of which at least two of the three big three are overpaid, and then nobody behind it. That's because of Ernie Grunfeld. Albert Bernenko of Deadspin put it this way, and this is the best. He writes, the Wizards got Gortat in the first place when Grunfeld shipped out Emeka Okafor for a first-round pick to the Suns based on the very deeply insane idea that what his team needed more than it needed a first-round pick was to replace an injured, expensive, declining, obsolete seven-footer with a healthy, expensive, declining, obsolete seven-footer. Then the Wizards got Jan Mahinmi when Grunfeld decided that the thing his team needed more than it needed $64 million in cap space was an expensive, declining, obsolete second footer, seven footer, a second one of those, so that two of the most expensive players on the roster could be range-free doofuses who can't even play at the same time as each other. 
And that's only centers. He also traded away a first-round pick for a half-season rental of Bo Buckets last year. And let's not talk about the time way back when when he traded a fifth pick in the 09 draft from Mike Miller and Randy Foy when he could have used it to select Steph Curry. Yes, uh, Grunfeld's in his 15th year as our GM and shows no signs of being fired by Ted Leonsis. Uh, this Wizards team that you saw this year, it might get worse from here on out. I don't see how the Wizards would be any better on the clearest of clear days than the fourth best team in the East going forward. Boston's going to get all their guys back healthy, and they are going to be an absolute monster of a team. Philly is already a monster of a team, and Toronto is well-constructed with a super deep bench. That's just three right there. How would the Wizards be any better than fourth best in the East? And that doesn't even count where LeBron might go, although if he does go somewhere in the East, it would probably be Philly. So, yeah. Yeah, that's going to continue. Uh, the other thing about you know these centers that we've got is that they, they don't shoot threes, like, at all. Uh, this year, uh, Marcin Gortat attempted zero threes. Jan Mahinmi attempted two threes, and I don't, and he missed them both. 0 for 2 on the season for Jan Mahinmi. I was remembering how when Serge Ibaka came into the league, a.k.a. Serge Ibaka, for the Oklahoma City Thunder, he too didn't have any range. In fact, look at his first three years uh, in the league. Total three-pointers attempted, two, one, and three. Well, now you go down his year by year, he is averaging close to 300 three-point attempts in a full season when he's not injured, and he's shooting 36 to 37% from three. He's turned himself into a three-shooter. Seven-foot Joel Embiid. Only his second year of playing, first year, uh, only shot 98 threes, but still made 36% of them. This year, he doubled that to 214 Made a, a, a lesser percentage at 30%, but still. Big men in today's NBA shoot threes. Period. End of story. All right, real quick. Who won the weekend? Who lost the weekend? Taylor Lewan and his Titans lineman chugging beer through a huge catfish at the Preds game. Absolute winner of the weekend. Did you see the uh, Jonas Cespedes home run that went into a garbage can in the bullpen with a lid on? Yes, it was one of those garbage cans where it's got just the mouth opening that goes out to the side in front of you. Home run, zoop, right into that trash can, like 420 feet away to dead center. And then finally, who won the weekend? You got to see the highlight reel of one Jordan Mailata. Who is Jordan Mailata, you might say? I have no idea who that is. He is a six foot eight inch tall. 346-pound rugby stud from Australia. And when you see his highlight reel, you're going to shit. It's it's hilarious. It's like watching a grown man play tackle football with a bunch of 10-year-olds. Knocking them over, stiff-arming them. It's awesome. Who lost the weekend? Aaron Goldhammer of Cleveland's ESPN Radio said that he would eat horse shit if the Browns indeed drafted Baker Mayfield. He says he's going to go through with it. Obviously, his name is getting out there. I just mentioned it, but seriously, is that not something you can weasel out of? Also, who lost the weekend? Kim Jong-un's bodyguards. Don't know if you saw this clip. Apparently, when Kim Jong-un went to go shake South Korea and their leader's hand in the uh, demilitarized zone, first time ever, historic as part of this new peace brokering in the uh, 
Korean Peninsula. He had bodyguards running alongside, <laughs> alongside his car. Hilarious. It's like they don't know that they now allow people on motorcycles to ride alongside a dignitary's motorcade car, which is already pretty heavily armored, already has guys inside of it with guns that can shoot people. You got to have guys running alongside the car? That would suck. Keep up. What, what's the training like for Kim Jong-un's bodyguards who have to run alongside his car? Does he fuck with them and, and go really fast and make them run until they're exhausted and then slow down and just mess with them? I don't know. And then finally, who lost the weekend? David Akers lost the weekend. Yes, that's right. David Akers. No, no. He didn't win the weekend. No, he lost the weekend. Because remember your role, buddy. You're a kicker, okay? This was Akers selecting the Eagles draft pick uh, at the NFL draft. The Indianapolis Colts have traded the 49th pick to the Philadelphia Eagles. To announce the Philadelphia Eagles selection, please welcome... From the University of Louisville, kicker David Akers. What's up, Dallas? Ah, oh, kicker's trolling the Cowboys. Last year. I like standing up here before you as an undrafted free agent, representing that shield for 15 years. Tonight, I'm representing the Philadelphia. Same thing. NFC champs and world champs. The world champs. Hey, Dallas, the last time you were in the Super Bowl, Uh-oh. these draft picks weren't born. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight, we are welcome into the Eagles. Okay, so, all right. Uh, I'll, I'll give it this. It had a good wrestling like pop to it with everyone booing really loud. But, bro, you're a kicker, number one. And number two, you weren't even there when they won the Super Bowl. So you don't even have a ring yourself. Know your role. You're still a kicker. All right, we'll close with this today. Whatever happened to that tree that President Emmanuel Macron and his entourage brought to the White House and then planted as a gift. Apparently, people uh, by the White House noticed that, hey, what what happened to that tree? Um, it was a pretty funny photo op because I think Trump was very dismissive, like, all right, here's a shovel of dirt. Are we done with this now? Anyway, it was a symbolic gesture. The tree came from a northern French forest where 2,000 U.S. Marines died during the First World War. It was a young sapling oak tree. Uh, Apparently, the explanation is that the tree is now quarantined, which is mandatory for any living organism imported into the U.S. It will be replanted once it clears quarantine. Apparently, someone on the Internet said, well, that seems a bit late, the quarantine, since you already put it in the ground and put dirt on it. Uh, The diplomat for the French delegation said that the roots, however, had been enclosed in plastic. So that should be good. I quickly went to the comments section. It was pretty funny. Apparently, 5 billion chestnut trees were wiped out in America around 1900 because of uh, some sort of invasive species and or tree. Um, 
Someone said the tree has flipped on Trump and is currently being interviewed by Mueller. Someone else pointed out that the French president, Mr. Macron, is 40, but his wife is 65. So he's gone up 25 years in age. The U.S. president is 71. His wife is 48. So he's gone the exact opposite direction. Maybe that's more interesting than the story that was written. Of course, I would be willing to venture that the French president with a 65-year-old wife has a mistress or two that is a wink-wink, nod-nod because it's Europe and it's France and they have a different view of morality and mistresses, especially with politicians, than we do here in the U.S. All right, that'll be a wrap for today. You know the drill. Tell two friends and make a custom T-shirt to wear that says Zabecast on it. Leave a positive review, download, subscribe to all the major podcast outlets. You know what they are. And as everybody knows, there's no crying in baseball, but there are willing road skanks in every hotel lobby bar. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.